No matter what organization you lead, finances are paramount for your success. And church finances aren't any different. Poorly managed church finances can hurt a pastor's ability to lead church members and reach the local community. After all, very little will wreck the movement of God more than weak financial policies and workflows. Thankfully, it's much easier to make changes now, before your church is in the headlines, than to try to reestablish those relationships after they've been torpedoed by a costly financial misstep. And that's where our friends at Belay can help. Belay, a modern church staffing organization with fractional U.S.-based accounting and virtual assistant services, has helped busy church leaders do just that for more than a decade. To help you figure out where to start, Belay is offering its resource, Four Costly Financial Mistakes for Churches, to our listeners for free to help you identify the four biggest things we can see wreck churches when it comes to their finances and what you can do to avoid them. Just text RUSTY, that's R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123 to get back to growing your church with Belay. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, well, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here. As mentioned, this is Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George. There's been so much in the news and the media and mainstream regarding the LGBTQ plus community, how we relate to them, how we accept them, how we understand them. And every now and then a voice comes along that says, you know what, I'm part of that community and I have a little different take on it. And I wanted you to hear from Beckett Cook. Beckett raises some very interesting points about his own journey through being same-sex attracted. And for those of you that have somebody in your family or maybe somebody in your home, or maybe it's yourself, that is feeling this war within between the desires or the attractions that you have and reading the Bible and hearing that maybe that's not God's best for you. And you're trying to figure out have I misread God or have I misread the scriptures? I think you're really going to understand a whole lot better from Beckett's perspective. I was blessed to get to know Beckett a few years ago from a mutual friend in Don Gates and Caleb Kaltenbach. And I've had several conversations with him, several cups of coffee, and he's just a great guy with a really strong heart for God. That's going to give you such an incredible perspective. I highly recommend his book, A Change of Affection. That was very helpful for so many people in understanding how to view uh, their own sexuality. And as we wrap up a series at Real Life called Kids These Days, we've been talking a lot about some of the uh, pressures that our kids are facing in trying to understand and to recognize how they identify and finding their worth from that when they probably shouldn't and where our worth truly comes from. I think you're really gonna be blessed by what Beckett has to say. I wanna thank Belay Solutions for their support of the Leading Simple podcast. And Belay is a great resource. It helps out so many people with virtual assistance and website design and social media. You're going to want to check out belaysolutions.com. Well, here's my conversation with Beckett Cook. Here we go. Beckett Cook, thank you for joining the podcast. Rusty, it's a pleasure to be here. We met, I think, about three years ago yeah. at a coffee shop down in 
Hollywood or whatever. I think it was the blue uh, near me. Um, yes, like Beverly Boulevard. And yes, West, yes, West Hollywood area. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Mike Bro had read your book and told me about you, and I said he lives down here. We have a mutual friend in Don Gates. Oh right, uh, yeah, our uh, editor or not editor agent. Agent. I, it's so weird to say I have an agent, but book agent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he connected us, and a mutual friend of Caleb Kaltenbach as well, and I was so fascinated by your story, wanted to have you out to real life to talk, and then COVID hit, the world shut down, and now we're finally able to get face-to-face. -face. Yes. Hopefully, one of us doesn't have COVID right I now. Know, right? So, tell us for our audience that doesn't know your story, tell us who you are. Well, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and when I was very young probably, I don't know, middle, uh, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, I started to realize that I was attracted to the same sex, which is a very odd sensation to have when you're a kid, yeah. especially back in the 80s when it was very, very taboo, especially in Dallas and uh, according to my peers, according to the world, really. Yeah. It was it was a, a love that dare not speak its name. So, yeah. That was a, it's a strange phenomenon. Um, and you feel almost like it is schizophrenic in a way because on the outside, you have to appear to be, you know, normal, quote unquote. And I, so I did, I went study with girls in seventh and eighth grade, but all the while knowing I wasn't, you know, I didn't have an attraction to the girls. And so it was a strange, so I had to kind of bury this thing, this secret inside. And, I'm not really sure how I navigated it. I mean, how because it, it is a really weird thing to happen. Mm -hmm. And and then I, when I went off to high school, I went to a all boys Jesuit school, and I that's when things really kind of took off because I I met someone in my class when I was a junior in high school um, who also was dealing with same sex attraction. Okay, and we became like best friends instantly, and that's when kind of the floodgates opened. And I, we started exploring gay culture in Dallas. Uh, I mean, I was 15, 14, 15, and he was a year younger. But we were going out to gay bars, and I don't know how we got into these bars. But, wow. Uh, I mean, we looked so young. And we, but I remember going to this one club called the Stark Club. It was designed by Philippe Stark, the famous French designer. It was really, it was actually this super beautiful place like a space like a industrial warehouse kind mm -hmm. of very beautiful actually and and uh we were somehow and again we were like 14 15 and we were on the guest list i mean it was like really expensive to get into this club and we were immediately put on the guest list and i remember walking in for the first time and seeing straight people gay people drag queens like the whole gamut right and I remember just thinking, wow, like this is, these are my people. Like hmm. these are the misfits of the world and they're all here. And like, this is crazy. I, and I felt this kind of sense of, I finally found my tribe in a way. And yeah. And so that went on throughout high school, a lot of craziness. And, um, and then in college, the same thing happened. I ended up befriending someone who, same thing, dealing with same-sex attraction. We ended up coming out to each other. It was this whole drama. And then and then we started going out to to bars and stuff and clubs and 
And and I, so in high school and in college, I had someone to confide in, mm-hmm. and I had which which was actually really helpful. And so instead of just like burying it and not being able to speak about it to anyone, I, I was able to talk about it all the time with these two close friends, plus a kind of an inner circle of people who who knew. And then it was it wasn't until after college that it became my identity. Homosexual homosexual behavior became my identity after college when I moved to Tokyo with my best friend from college. We we wanted to we didn't know what to do with our lives after college because like I was I was gonna I applied to med school and law school and dental school. I didn't even apply to med school. I applied to dental school and law school, got in to both. And I was like, I don't even know if I want to do either of these. And my friend was in the same boat. He was like, should I go to law school? And so we were like, let's go to Tokyo for a year and figure our lives out. Because you could, at that time in the 90s, you could go to Japan and like teach English and it was very lucrative. They loved like Americans coming over. And so that was a big deal in the early 90s. And so we went to Japan you know, got jobs literally the day after we landed, like mm. had jobs. Um, and and while we were there, we, we lived in this tiny apartment the size of the studio. And uh, basically, and kind of, I don't know how long, eight months into it, he, his friend from Texas was visiting Japan and came and stayed with us. And let's call him Adam. So Adam stayed with us for a week and by the end of the week, Adam and I had fallen in love with each other, quote unquote. Okay. And we could talk about what that means, falling in love. But, um, and that's when I was like, okay, like this is who I am. This is amazing. This is my identity. And that's when I came out to my family, my friends, everyone knew. Like, cause I got, I went, I came back to Dallas after Tokyo a couple months later. And, everyone knew in my yeah. life, my family members. And so that was, that was like my kind of big coming out moment. And, um, and then that relationship dissolved. Uh, it was, it was really intense for a little, like, I, I think a year or two, and then it, it crashed and burned, which is very common. And, um, and then I moved to Los Angeles. And because I was like, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm not going to go to dental dental school. I, this is I don't want to do any of that. I just want to like go be a writer and maybe an actor. So I moved to LA. And in 1993, June of 1993, and uh, and when I got to LA, I already had this whole core group of really fun friends because like my best friends from high, two of two or three of my best friends from high school who had all gone to like these Ivy League schools on the East Coast, they had migrated West with all their friends from Brown and Princeton. And they were all in the business. They were all like actors, writers, producers, directors. And they were like super ambitious, super smart, funny as all get out. And and so uh, so I had this instant Insta group of friends. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And they were there and there were, you know, there were straight people, gay people. It was a whole mix of people. And they and it was it was crazy because like over the you know next several years, I saw all of my friends one by one were becoming like huge overnight. 
like Minnie Driver was a friend before she did Goodwill Hunting. And she was, we were all, she was in our group of friends. And mm. she was kind of like a not really known actress. She had done like a movie, one movie, I think with Chris O'Donnell. But, um, but then like she did Goodwill Hunting and then she became this movie star. Like, and then that happened to all my friends. Like they all became huge in the business and mm -hmm. big directors. And they basically, those same people, <laughs> all that whole crew, <laughs> They run Hollywood now. Like whatever content people are imbibing on Netflix or HBO or whatever, that those that's from my friends. They <laughs> they run the town. Wow. Um, and so, so and I in, in LA, I was having all these amazing experiences. I was, you know, going to parties and the the uh, I was going to movie premieres every week and the Golden Globes, the Oscars, the Emmys, and the Grammys. I was going. To, I was always invited to these award shows and to the after parties, the Vanity Fair parties and all these things. So there was a lot of shiny objects in my life, just constantly distracting me and, and going to Prince's house for a three hour concert he performed in his backyard for no apparent reason. Like, yeah. you know, just little things like that. Sure. Um, hanging out with Ariane Huffington at her house in Brentwood. That thing, I, she's hilarious. Like, um, I was like, I, I told Arietta Huffington one time, I said, you know, you're my favorite person in LA. I was so into her and she was like, thank you, darling, that's so, so, that's so kind. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so I was having all this fun and I, you know, I was, I had some success in acting and writing, but it was like struggle, struggle, struggle. And then I ended up becoming a production designer uh, in the fashion world. So I was doing set design for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and for these big brands like Nike, Gap, you know, YSL, all these fashion brands. That's what I ended up doing basically as my career uh, for many, many years. And, and then with, with my group of friends, we, God was never, we never once mentioned God. Like we all just knew that God didn't, we, it was just a tacit understanding. God's not real and we don't even have to discuss it because God uh -huh. is just for those people that yeah. we don't, you know, those silly people who don't really know anything. And so we, um, but we all wanted three things in life. We all wanted to make it big in Hollywood, which they all did in a big, big way. Um, we wanted to find true love, which, you know, I cycled through like five serious relationships with guys, lived with them. So it was almost like, it was almost like being married and divorced like five times because mm. it was that intense. Mm -hmm. It was very traumatic. Um, and then we all wanted to have these extraordinary experiences, which we were doing, you know? And so I thought, okay, this is what life is about. It's about, you know, know thyself. It's about, you know, having these great experiences and these friends and, um, you know, and I, and I wanted to know the meaning of life. And so I, I, read Russian novels all the time. And I went to plays in New York and London all the time, like really serious plays by Harold Pinter and Tony Kushner and Eugene O'Neill, like think, plays that I, you think you would think would give you kind of insight into the meaning of life, but they right. never really did. Cause it would just like evaporate. Yeah. Cause it, they're written from a place of dark, like from a place of darkness really. Um, and so, it was always frustrating to me. And then my religion of choice kind of was the art world. Like mm -hmm. when, whenever I was in New York or London or Paris, I would, every day I would go to multiple museums. Like it was, mm. that was my thing. And I just thought art was like, 
almost like a spiritual thing. I was like, this is, this yeah. is like giving me this meaning. I'm, it's like the, the museum was like a temple for me. And so that went on and on for, for years. And then the turning point was in March of 2009. I was in Paris at Fashion Week. I used to go to Fashion Weeks a lot in New York and Paris. And uh, that year I, had gone to a bunch of the runway shows and most of the shows have after parties. And, um, so I was at this particular after party and, um, and this was, this was March, yeah, March of 2009. And I, I remember it was at this club called Regine, this very famous Parisian club in the middle of Paris. And I, I remember I was sitting with Rachel Zoe and her husband, Roger. Rachel was like this fashion girl who had a TV show on Bravo. And, I was kind of like looking out over the dance floor. Everyone was there, you know, in the, from the fashion world. Kanye was there. Like everyone was there. And I just remember drink, I was drinking champagne and I just felt this overwhelming sense of emptiness hmm. and overwhelming like, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Like Peggy Lee would sing. Yeah. So I, I had this kind of a terrifying moment of like, wow this can't be my life anymore. Like this is this kind of like, these shiny objects have sustained me since high school, since I was on the guest list at the Stark Club, you know, in Dallas, mm -hmm. you know, like going up the red carpet and people like waiting in long lines and me just being whisked up to the, you know, front door. Like I, and, but I was like, this can't be my life anymore. Mm. Like this, this isn't real. This isn't real meaning. This is, it's all been kind of a mirage in a way. And, and I was in a panic because I was like, well, God's, and I knew for many years, I knew that God was not an option for me because I was gay. I was like, so God is not an option. And I, by that point in my life in 2009, I was, I was a practical atheist. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, I just, I, I, I had gotten to a point where I was like, okay, the Bible's an ancient myth like any other myth, any other ancient myth. And, um, and God is not, it's not, God's not real. Mm -hmm. And so I was in this bind and I, so I went back to my, the apartment I had rented in Paris in the Marais and I was kind of up all night in a panic about my my life and my future. And I'm like, what am hmm. I going to do? Like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep going, going to dinner parties and like, do it's just like, I can't. I can't have another conversation about fashion, you know, with somebody. And <laughs> and so... <laughs> well, it's, what's interesting, if I, can, if I can interject here for just a second, is here you are with... It's not like you're putting yourself in situations where people are communicating truth to you. But inwardly, you know, you know, something's not right. Yeah. You know, there's a God you should dismiss and overlook or assume he's not there. And if there is one, he certainly wouldn't be happy with your lifestyle. There's just that assumption there. It's just kind of hardwired in, would you say? Yeah. And I see, this is the thing. I knew there was no question in my mind. I knew I was clear what the Bible had to say about homosexual behavior. I knew what it mm. said. I wasn't ignorant of that, you know? Yeah. And so I knew that there was this chasm because I wasn't willing to give up my identity, quote unquote, at that time. Like, so it's like, well, how could I ever 
um, reconcile the two things. There's no way for that to happen. Right. And then I got back to LA, and then six six months later, as God would have it, I was at a coffee shop in Silver Lake at Intelligentsia, and I was with my best friend. That was our kind of thing. Every weekend, we would go to brunch in Venice, go shopping in West Hollywood or Beverly Hills, which is gay church, brunch and shopping. And then we would go to <laughs> Intelligentsia for coffee and hang out, like, for the rest of the day. We would just chill and, like, talk to people. We knew, you know, people we, we would know, would, we would run into people. And that particular particular day, we were chatting, and we noticed a table next to us, and there were young people at the table, and there was a, there were Bibles, physical Bibles, on the table, mm. and that was a stunning, shocking thing to see in Los Angeles because I had never seen a Bible in public in LA, not once yeah. since I had been here. So we ended up in a conversation with them. Um, it's kind of like a Christian's fantasy come true when a gay atheist is like, hey, are you guys Christians? Tell me about your faith. What's the gospel? Literally, that's what I asked them. They had to think they were being punk. <laughs> I, I know. Come on. So, <laughs> it's just like a gift, like here. Of, and so, they told me, because again, because of the six months prior to that, because of that night in Paris, I was open to hearing a different narrative. Yeah. So I, I just said, what do you guys believe? I was raised Roman Catholic. Like, I, I don't even know what it, and they told me they were evangelical Christians and they, they went to this church in Hollywood called Reality LA and they, um, they kind of just told me what their faith was and the gospel. And, and then you know, we talked for a while and it was a very pleasant, pleasant conversation. And I, of course, get to the $64,000 question and I say, well, what is your church in Hollywood believe about homosexuality. And they said, well, we believe it's a sin. And they were just like very upfront about it. And there mm. were like, there was no kind of like bait and switch or dodging, sort of dodging it. I mean, like, okay. well, we don't really know. I mean, God really whispers it in the Bible. No, they, it was none of that. It was just like, yeah, it's a sin. And we believe it. And so, and I, I knew, I, I, I knew that was going to be their answer. Um, mm. But the thing is, what's odd about that is, my reaction because in the past i would have been you know a year before that 10 years before that i would have been like you guys are insane and you need help like yeah. i'm leaving now so good luck right but because of that night in paris i was just kind of like huh. i was like what if i've built my whole life on a false foundation and i don't know it i mean god could exist there is a chance that he does exist a slim read of a chance like and uh what if what if he does exist and homosexual behavior is a sin and i don't know any of this like that's a possibility so they invited they invited me to their church the, the following sunday and i honestly didn't know if i was going to go cuz it's it's kind of a big step to like to it's like betraying your people <laughs> it's like yeah. cuz if anyone it's like my best friend who was who is still gay uh we're not cl that close anymore, which is unfortunate. Uh, but anyway, if any of my friends had found out that I was going to an evangelical Christian church, mm -hmm. they would have been. They would have just been like, "What is happening to Beckett? Like mm -hmm. something? Like he needs help." Um. So it was kind of risky to go 
And because I was like, what if people find out? What if I'm humiliated? This is weird. And so I said, just give me the address and I'll think about it. So I had a whole week to think it through. And I was kind of going back and forth about it. I was like, mm. maybe I should go, maybe I shouldn't. And then the following Sunday rolls around and I was like, what do I have to lose, really? Like, <laughs> I guess I can just go. And so I got up and got dressed, got him, and I drove to the high school auditorium where it meets in Hollywood. And I walk up, and the first thing there's this woman, uh, the this I, she's a dear friend now, um, Heidi Tortorici. But she, I walk up, and she's like, "Hello, we love you." I'm like, <laughs> I'm like looking behind my me, and like, what? What are you talking about? You love me, and um, and then I walked into the auditorium, and the worship band was playing, and. That was a, a weird moment too, because I, I had just seen, not had just, but like a couple years before, I just, I, I was into this show called um, True Blood, this really dark yeah, show that's no one should watch. Right? Vampires. Yeah, yeah. And they, they had this whole episode where they made fun of Christian singer, mm. worship singers, and basically like threw them under the bus. It was just terrible. So I remember walking in and hearing the worship music and thinking of that episode and like, oh, Christian music, ooh, creepy, like this is so weird. But then I was like, wait, it's actually nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's really, I, I just loved how it was beautiful, just the way it was done. And so I found, I sat by myself and Pastor Tim Chaddock came out and started preaching a sermon on Romans chapter seven. He was in a, the book of Romans for two years and like he, this, he happened to be on Romans seven that yeah. day. And, uh, when Paul's like, why do I do the things I don't want to do, blah, blah, blah. And so, mm. I, when he started preaching, I, I just noticed this weird thing happening in me. And it was like, I was, everything he was saying, every word, every sentence was resonating as truth in my mind, in my heart. And I didn't know why. I was like, I was literally on the edge of my seat, riveted to the sermon, listening to every single word. And it was the first time in my life that I had fully un uh, heard the gospel and understood it. Hmm. It was like, it just became so clear. And I was like, I remember thinking like, this is the gospel. This is like, it turned everything religion on its head. And I was like, this is good news. And it blew my mind. I So then after the sermon, he said, you know, there's people on the side of the auditorium, on the prayer ministry, if you need prayer for anything, blah, blah, blah. So, that was another moment is like, if I walk over there and ask for prayer, then I'm admitting that this might be real and like people could be watching me and they're probably like, oh, you know, I don't know. It was embarrassing kind of. <laughs> yeah. So, but I was like, whatever. So I walked over and again, it was like Christian fantasy come true. I walk up to this guy on the prayer team and I'm like, hey, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. Yeah. And he's like, let me pray for you. And he lays hands on me with that was still legal here in California. <laughs> and he prayed for me. And um, I was like, just, I was kind of like, how does this random straight dude love me so much? Right. Cause it seems so loving. And it seemed like, why does he care about me so much and my salvation or whatever? So I go back to my seat. I sit down while everyone else is standing and worshiping for the next 25 minutes. There's more, there's 25 more minutes of worship music. Yeah. I sit down because I'm so just overwhelmed by everything. And um this and then like the second I sit down, the Holy Spirit just just like <sighs> like falls upon me or just mm. and opens my eyes. And God's like, I remember in my mind, 
this is this is exactly what ha- went down in my mind. It wasn't an audible voice, but God said, "I'm God. Jesus is my Son. Heaven is real. Hell is real. The Bible is true. Welcome to welcome to my kingdom." Wow. And I just started like bawling hysterically for the next 25 minutes. I could not. I was like doubled over, and. I was crying harder than I'd ever cried since I was an infant, but it made sense because I had just been born again. Um, so I was like bawling and bawling and bawling. And I was crying over the conviction of sin, but also over the joy of meeting Jesus and knowing finally, no, literally I was like, it felt like the curtains had parted and I could see the wow. meaning of life for the first time in my life. I was like, oh my gosh, now I know where I came from, what I'm doing here and where I'm going. Like it was just wow. like, it was a road to Damascus. It was so powerful. It was almost like when Paul says, like, I once knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven when he's talking about himself. It, it felt like I was caught up into heaven for, like, a split second. Yeah. Like, that's how intense it felt. And it was so... Uh, it was like, I wish I, could, I wish I could go back and do that again because it was yeah. so fun. It was such a fun moment, um, such a crazy moment. And then... I got home after the service and I got into bed to take a nap. I was just like, my whole, I didn't even know, my, I didn't even know what to think. I was so overwhelmed. Got into bed and then God did it again. He's like, it was like when Moses is in the cleft of the rock and God passes by with his glory. God's like, let me show you some more of my glory. And, and I jumped out of my bed. I started bawling again. It just just burst into tears. Mm. And I jumped out of my bed and in the middle of my bedroom, I said, God, you have my whole life. I'm yours. I'm done. And I knew, that's when I knew. In that moment, I knew to the core of my being that homosexual behavior was a wrong, that it was a sin, that it was not, I, it was no longer my identity, that dating guys was no longer part of my future, but I didn't care because I had just met Jesus. And I'm like, I'm going to go with that guy. Good mm. riddance to that old life. And that was, yeah, September 20th, 2009 at 2.30 p.m. It was crazy. Okay. Wow. First of all. And second <laughs> of all. Can I have a drink of water now? <laughs> second of all, thank you for sharing it. I think it's, I think it's important to point out that when you have those kind of Damascus moments, there's an assumption that it will always be that way. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Yeah. I love your honesty of saying, I wish I could go back to that moment. And it, it just isn't yeah. because life just kind of goes on. And there's there's even some of the Desert Fathers talk about the dark night of the soul. and Consolation, desolation. Yes, yeah. yes. This difficulty you go through and highs and lows and all that. But the constant thing is Jesus is still with you through the whole thing. Um, And just as a side note, since that time, I've had multiple extraordinary, amazing experiences with God. Just like intense, just very similar. But yeah, I know what you're saying. It does kind of wax and wane. I mean, yes, yeah. Yeah, definitely. How was it then? I mean, you've just had this incredible mountaintop experience, but you got to start... You got to start saying goodbye to people or explaining to people who are going to say goodbye to you. Yeah. How was the next few weeks of your life? Goodbye, farewell, Alfita, and I do. Well, it was it was a really crazy time because I mean I was so just excited and full of joy that it didn't I didn't really care what my friends thought at that point. Mm-hmm. I was just like so elated. 
But I did have to sit each one down at its one at a time. And over the next three weeks, I sat, I, I met with all my really close friends. And I told them, and they were stunned. I mean, they didn't know what to really say. Mm. They were kind of like, wow. Like, they didn't know really. I got a couple of bad reactions from a couple people, especially the part when I told them about homosexual behavior being a sin. Yeah. <laughs> they were just like, oh, you've crossed over. Like, you're crazy. And I I kind of l lost a couple of friends over that. Um but they, uh, what's interesting is a lot of them, the kind of the, the general, the general vibe was like, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're happy. I'm glad you oh. found your path kind of thing. So, yeah. um, that's, that's what Mariska Hargitay said. Like she, cause I, I sent her a whole email about the whole story and she was like, I'm so glad you found your path, blah, blah, blah. And, um, uh, which was sweet. I mean, you know, it's like, what else do you say? Yeah. If you, cause you don't know. And so that was, that was a difficult time, but it was also uh, exciting because I got to tell them my story. I was, what was, what was weird about it is I thought, you know, I've been so close with these people for so long, especially like, these several of those friends were friends since high school, mm. very like best, best friends. And I was, I was actually shocked that they didn't like come to Christ immediately when I told them my stories. Yes. I was like, Oh wait, you're, what do you mean? You're resistant. Like they didn't, they I was like, follow you. You don't want to come to my church. Like, yeah. cause I all invited them all to my church and they were just like, not into it at all. And, um, some, a couple were, but anyway, so it was, a, it was a really, strange time and and then i was still working you know i was working as a production designer at the time and i i uh i remember just just telling everyone on the set i didn't care i was just like completely fearless and i was just like jesus is real you guys it's crazy i was telling i was telling like actresses pop star katy perry i mean she kind of already but i was telling um just uh, Paris Hilton, like all these people. I was like, Jesus is real. It's crazy. The gospel's true. You guys have to believe this. It's amazing. And um, I was shocked that I didn't get fired off of these shoots <laughs> for years. I, I just, I was just on every shoot. I would, I would tell everyone about my faith and my story. And, and um, I thought for sure, like, this is the last job. Like there, I'm never going to get hired again on these shoots. Mm -hmm. And they, I just kept, kept getting hired and hired for many, many years until my book came out in 2019. And that's, that's kind of like when it's like, okay, the jig is up. Like it was yeah. one thing for you to talk about this yeah. like in private sort of, but like to have a book out in the world, like you can't, we can no longer have you on the set with yeah. Jessica Chastain and Julia Roberts, because it's too weird that you say homosexual behavior is a sin and Oprah, you know, like there's no yeah. way you can work with these people. Right. And so that's when my career as a production designer ended. But um, but it was it was cool. But for a long time, God ha I gave me such favor with that world, and I was able to just share the gospel with so many people. And and a few of those people have come to faith since. So it's mm. been cool to see that. Okay, so I want to ask some of the questions that everybody has about you know just a little bit of pushback. I guess I should say. Because for so long, your identity was your homosexuality. Mm -hmm. 
And so the, the pushback people have is, well, if you call that a sin, then I am denying your identity. That seems like the furthest thing from the love of Jesus mm-hmm. that, I can, that I can find. So how do, how do you balance those? How do you see that? The love of Jesus, but uh, my identity is broken. Yeah, I mean, all of our identities are broken because of the fall. And, mm. and you know, whether you're born gay or whether it's environmental, it doesn't matter. It's a moot point because we're all born in sin. We're not only born in sin, we're conceived in sin, as the Bible says. And, and so, we all are born with innate sinful Im- impulses. That mm. doesn't mean we act on them. And, and by the way, the, the identity aspect component of it is, you know, homosexual behavior used to just be a behavior. It didn't become an identity until, it became an identity over the last 50 years. And Sigmund Freud had a big part of that because he, Sigmund Freud um, said at the core, human beings are sexual beings. Like that's, that's the core of what it means to be human is being sexual. And so that, and along with a lot of other philosophers, Mm -hmm. Rousseau, you know, if, if you read a uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Oh, Carl uh, Truman. Very helpful. Yeah. And, um, but it, so it's gone from a behavior, it's gone from a behavior to an identity. It's gone from a sin to a sacrament over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so, even though I thought it was my identity, it was a false identity. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even real. And so, um, when huh. Jesus in the Gospels, he, when Jesus is interacting with prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, he doesn't just like leave them in their quote unquote identity or their sin. He calls them to repentance. So when he calls Levi the tax collector, when Levi leaves the tax booth and come and then throws a party for Jesus at, at his house, that's a sign of rep- rep- celebration in the Gospels is a sign of repentance. That that's a sign of repentance, and he leaves it behind. Mm. The woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, like he he calls her he calls her out on her sin. Yeah. So Jesus never he was he obviously obviously he was the master of balancing grace and truth, right. but he never separated grace and truth. Mm-hmm. You can't have one without the other, and it, if you um, if a lot of people, you know, would say, "Oh, it's hate speech to say that homosexual behavior is a sin," and it's actually like the opposite because it's love speech. Those people at the coffee shop love me enough to tell me the truth, and hmm. I'm so grateful to them for not for because I could have, who knows, I could have wound up in a gay, a quote unquote gay church or gay affirming church, but. I'm so grateful that they told me the truth, but they did it graciously. They weren't like, you know, you're going to hell. Like they were just loving and sweet about it. And they were, but they were very matter of fact. And Jesus is like that in the gospels. He doesn't mince words, but he's also gracious with people. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's, that's where we, it's always a danger to go too hard on the truth or too hard on the grace side. So you have to really keep those in balance. And ask God for wisdom in that. Yeah, that's the the art and the science of it all. It seems like there's this real difficulty for churches especially and individuals to see the difference between accepting and affirming. Mm -hmm. Because somebody can be accepting without being affirming, but in culture's mindset, if you're not affirming, then you're not accepting and you're not loving. 
So to love the gay community must you, means you must affirm their choices. How would you speak to that? Yeah, well, I would say I would say loving is the better word to use it rather than accept. Accepting has different connotations to it. Okay, because it's almost like you're accepting that it's the behavior is wholly righteous and good, <laughs> which is the what the culture says. Um, but I would say, yeah, um, I would say loving loving them is i mean jesus said that the 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 all of the law and the prophets can be fulfilled in these two commandments love god and right. love your neighbor right so i have nothing but love for my neighbor including my lgbtq neighbor i have nothing but love and compassion because i was there i live i was there but for the grace of god go i like i was that in that community and god rescued me out of it and so I, there's, there, you can be, you can hold fast to your convictions and the biblical truth, but still love people. And, and now, unfortunately in our culture now, it's difficult. It's almost become such a barrier to even say that to right. someone who's in the community, in that community, because when, when you say that to them in the community, all they hear is you hate me. Right. And like, if you don't fully affirm me and accept me, then you hate me. Right. And there's really nothing you can do about that. There really isn't. All you can do is continue to love that person and pray for them. My sister-in-law did that for 20 years. She was an evangelical Christian. She loved me like crazy. Mm. Uh, she never, she didn't like condemn me ever. She just loved me. And she prayed for me for 20 she prayed Acts 26, 18 over me for 20 years, or I don't know, 15, 20 years. And, and guess what? God answered her prayer, amazingly. <laughs> Acts 26, 18, is, it's, it's in the, it, it starts in the middle of a sentence, so it's a little awkward. But it's Paul in front of King Agrippa, and he's telling him what God has sent him out to do. And he's preaching to the Gentiles. And he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Mm. That's Acts 26, 18. And she prayed that one verse over me. And I, I just actually talked to her. I interviewed her for my show this week, actually. And she, I, she said that one day, I said, what was kind of the, the you know, this turning point for you with in terms of me kind of praying for me. And she was like, it was, she was in a study in revelation, the book of revelation. And she was just like, it really struck her. Hmm. She just was like, God, I want Beckett to be in heaven with me. Like, please. And she just like cried out to God. And, and then that's when she started really praying, you know, consistently for me. Hmm. That's so good. Yeah, and I think behind everybody who's made any kind of conversion, you find somebody that was just praying for them faithfully. Monica for, and Augustine, yeah. Yeah, for on and on <laughs> and on. Okay, so uh, last question, and that is, this is the big one that I think is out there for a lot of people that are in this situation. The assumption is that if I make this choice to follow Jesus, if I give up on this lifestyle, okay, I've gotten over the hurdle of identity and all of that. And I love what you said, that it wasn't an identity to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, but God wouldn't want me to be alone. 
answer that for me? Um, well, you're not alone. You so yeah. I mean, people as people say that to me all the time. They're like, "It's isn't it unfair that you have to be alone for the rest of your life? Isn't it? Don't you feel cheated that you can't have a partner, you know, boyfriend for the rest of your life, or get married to a guy?" And I'm like, "What? First of all, I have the most." amazing relationship with the creator of the universe number one and it is such a powerful relationship paul was single jesus was single paul the apostle was running around the mediterranean being shipwrecked thrown in prison beaten planting churches and he didn't care all he cared about was getting the gospel out and Um, even in Romans 7, he says it's better to be single. You know, there's that whole single thing. And uh, and so, yeah, and I always say this. I mean, I've said this a billion times. But what's unfair is Jesus had to be beaten, crucified, and tortured for my sins. That's what's unfair. I I honestly have not, since this has been, it's been 13 years since I've been a Christian. And not... I'm telling you, not one time have I ever felt like, woe is me, or my life is hard, or this is so difficult. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. Mm. The fact that God plucked me out of darkness and pulled me into his marvelous light is the most extraordinary thing that can happen to a human being. And as Tim Keller, he Tim Keller once said this kind of like, and he's kind of caught himself a little bit, but he's he was like, it's like winning... It's like winning the biggest lottery in the world. Um, but like, yeah, I just, I know, I don't feel that way. And I have my relationship with, not only with Christ is so all consuming and all, and so fulfilling. And also, I mean, it's like it, uh, any other relationship pales in comparison to that. Mm. But also the, my relationship with the body of Christ. Like I have so many Christian friends who I can turn to and who, um, you know, pray for me and hang out with and all this stuff. And so that's what the body of Christ is partly there to do. You know, it's like we're to bear each other's burdens. And so I never feel alone. <laughs> I never feel cheated. I never feel like, you know, life's unfair ever. I feel like so unbelievably, uh, I mean, lucky is not a good word, but unbelievably blessed that I get mm. to be in the kingdom of God and get to have not only be in the kingdom, but have everlasting life, which is kind of a big deal, you know, <laughs> right. Uh, eternal life is sort of a big deal. And, um, and so, yeah, that's awesome. All right. Where can people find you? The book is called <laughs> a change of affection, Amazon, best place to find yeah, Amazon, anywhere, any, any fine bookstores, um, Barnes and Noble has it too. And all the, all of them, but, um, and then also I have a I have a podcast or I have a YouTube show and a podcast called The Beckett Cook Show. The reason I called it that is because every other name I tried was taken and I just never wanted to get sued over it. So I just yes. was like, I'm just gonna use my name. Yes. Where I talk about culture where I because I because I because I lived in that that culture for so long. So I talk about the lies of the culture and the biblical truth behind the lies. And so it's mm. called the Beckett Cook Show. It's weekly on YouTube. It's very good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I want you to come on my show. I'd be honored. Yeah, we need to do a... But it'll be video, right? Yeah, it'll be video. I gotta... You'll have to, like, Do a little bit of makeup or something. something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Beckett, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having for being me. on the show. And as uh, he said, check out the book, Change of Affection. It's fantastic. And of course, the podcast, YouTube show as well. Become a subscriber to yes. Beckett Cook. Is the, Subscribe. Is the best way to do it. Awesome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Wow. Well, that was a master class in understanding how to view identity, who we are in Christ. And I would imagine you've got somebody in mind that you want to share this with to encourage them. Not to preach at them, not to condemn them, but to encourage them. Please share that with them. And for everybody who might feel a little bit overwhelmed or a little bit confused or what do I do now, I would love to hear from you. You can DM me at RustyLGeorge on Instagram, and I would love to be able to be in conversation with you or share comments on my website, PastorRustyGeorge.com. Make sure you check out Beckett's social media and podcasts as well. He's such a great resource and has become a good friend. What a great, great guy and a great follower of Jesus um, that is dedicated to pursuing Christ first and making him his chief affection. So hopefully you'll share this with a friend and it'll be encouraging for them as well. Next week, we're back with brand new content as we roll into the month of February. Can't wait for you to be back with us. And until then, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple. As we mentioned at the top of the podcast, our friends at Belay are offering a free copy of their resource, Four Costly Financial Mistakes for Churches, exclusively to our podcast listeners today. Belay's modern church staffing solutions have been helping busy church leaders delegate important financial details for over a decade. Their fractional U.S.-based contractors provide accounting and virtual assistant services to level up your church through the power of delegation. Just text RUSTY, that's R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123 to claim this exclusive offer and get back to growing your church with Belay. That's RUSTY, R-U-S-T-Y, to 55123.